Hello everyone, this is Podcast 6. I'm not sure what you, the listeners, would find interesting. Uh, so every time I do these, I kind of take a stab at, you know, what would I want to know as a lay person about allergies? And one topic that frequently comes up is, and patients ask me this every now and then, why are allergies increasing? And I wish I had an answer. And by that, usually they can mean one of many things. But usually what they're referring to is why are food allergies, like peanut allergies, increasing? And you always get the anecdotal stories, which is true also, that food allergies was never heard of in the 70s, 80s. and you, uh, Yeah, I am an 80s kid. I don't recall anyone having food allergies at that time. And in the quote-unquote good old days, that it was very uncommon. Now, this is a very complicated and loaded question because there is a considerable amount of research into looking at why this phenomena is increasing. So the incidence was increasing, that means how many new people get it, uh, get the condition, and the prevalence, if we look at how many people have it at a certain point of time, uh, has gone up uh, steadily over the years. Now over the last few years I hear that it is plateauing in some of the studies that I've read, but why are food allergies really increasing? Well, uh, there's many reasons, but one of the prevailing theories is this thing called hygiene theory, where we live in these glass towers that are sterile, and none of us really get all that sick anymore. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of little anecdotal research showing um, that certain populations are less prone to getting allergies, uh, I shouldn't say anecdotal because these are what we call population cohort studies or epidemiologic studies looking into certain populations that have it uh, less. And there are isolated pockets of different populations, uh, for example, uh, the Mennonite population or the Isle of Wight. Uh, it's apparently a little uh, tiny island somewhere in the UK where people don't really leave. Um, so we can do these little small population-based studies to get clues. There's always the comparative studies uh, looking at Asian children uh, born in Asia versus Asian children born in North America. Uh, there's uh, another one looking at uh, Jewish children born in the UK versus Jewish children born in Israel. So we get all these sort of hints into why things may be the way they are. So a couple of interesting things and theories emerge from this hygiene theory uh, from some of these other studies is that if you get an infection like hepatitis A or you get exposed to endotoxins growing up on a farm, endotoxins are basically uh, toxins that can be sometimes in uh, cow's poop and things like that, animal uh, poop. And if you get exposed to something like this, you're very unlikely to develop a food allergy. So why is this the case? Well, when you get exposed to some kind of infection like this, or a toxin like this, it does polarize the immune system. Uh, by that, you know, your immune system can go one of many ways, but there's a way that it'll lead to allergies, and there's a way that will stray you away from allergies. So the pulling away from allergies is favored when you get exposed to these types of infections. It's almost like if you don't get exposed to the stuff, your immune system's kind of bored and starts reacting to stuff that's benign, like uh, peanut protein, uh, such as RH1 or RH2. These are sort of uh, the top proteins that can cause severe reactions with peanut allergies.
other things um, that have been theorized is that in addition to living in sterile environments, we're not quite dirty enough. Um, we don't live with animals so much. So there's an interesting study that shows that if you live with uh, dogs growing up, you're less likely to get allergies. And there's other studies showing that if you have a few older siblings, get exposed to germs a little bit more, you're less likely to develop allergies too. So perhaps we're too clean for our own good, and we should uh, let our children frolic in the dust and dirt. Now, the other uh, prevailing theory is that there's a phenomenon called epigenetics. So epigenetics are uh, is the study of things outside of the gene itself, so outside of the actual DNA sequences. Uh, your DNA has a four-letter alphabet. Uh, you can think of them as uh, A, C, T, and G. Uh, the A and T pair up and C and G pair up, pair up. These changes in the DNA level don't occur very easily, nor do they occur very frequently. So I remember reading a broadcast, I think it was in the um, uh, late 90s, where a very, very uh, know-it-all journalist, uh, I can't remember the name, but essentially wrote that all these uh, helicopter parents and are uh, you know insane, they, uh, they all think that their kids have allergies, and he based his argument really on the fact that human DNA just doesn't mutate fast enough to account for all these allergens. Uh, well, you know, um, this is the issue I have sometimes with medical journalism. He's completely wrong. Around that time that he's writing this, we were just discovering this phenomenon called epigenetics. So there's a, everyone knows who Darwin is. He uh, has the theory of evolution and that these little uh, mutations lead to uh, occasionally uh, adaptations that are more favorable to survival and those species end up going uh, forward. Um, but it turns out there was a guy named Lamarck before that who theorized that traits are inheritable based on whatever that animal, the adult parent, was exposed to. So, for example, uh, he, he would theorize that if your parents were uh, working with rough machinery and the hands were rough, that their, children's would get, uh, their children would get rough hands as well. Uh, if, uh, uh, so, basically, his theory was that the environment influences the parents, and then the parents can pass that on uh, immediately to help their offspring or, or better suit their offspring. So, of course, when Darwin came out, uh, this guy was completely dismissed. But it turns out Lamarck was uh, somewhat right as well. So they're both right. Uh, human beings are very complicated. And a lot of these more complicated organisms on Earth uh, have this, uh, these epigenetic changes that can occur. They're essentially dimmer switches for how active or not active that gene is. So... You know, you can imagine a light dimmer switch. If it's really on, it's really bright. If it's really uh, low, it's not that bright. So your body has this ability to make these changes happen. And these are passed down from one generation to the next or occasionally sk skipping a generation. So it turns out some of the epigenetic changes that occurred uh, promoted the development of allergies. One of the things that happened to us is the Industrial Revolution, where there was a lot more pollution around. And we know that if uh, the your maternal grandmother was a cigarette smoker or was exposed to a lot of smoke, uh, that would result in the grandchildren having much more likelihood of having allergies. So in the Industrial Revolution, there was a lot of smoke around. Uh, and this is one of the theories on why 
um, it, you know, having skipped a generation why children uh, born uh, post the 80s and so on may have more allergies and uh, things like asthma. Now, there's all sorts of epidemiologic uh, and uh, epigenetic changes that correlate the epidemiology showing some of these trends. Um, this is a largely increasing area of study in allergy. It's kind of exploding. So how are these dimmer switches on? Um, it literally involves the DNA in your body being wrapped differently around these proteins called histones. Other times it's uh, adding a methyl group, we call this process methylation. It's basically, uh, if you imagine a felt uh, floor, uh, if you add obstacles to it, you can't go through that felt floor as much so that uh, that gene doesn't get turned on as easily. So that's uh, one of the other theories is that epigenetic changes are happening. This is also the same reason why no two twins, uh, even if they're identical, are actually identical. There's all sorts of environment and little uh, changes, and that's why not uh, uh, even in twins who are identical, they don't always have the same allergies. Of course, there's a heritability factor, which means that it's more likely or the tendency is more likely, but it's not a one-for-one -one kind of thing. Now, some other factors that may be playing a role is how uh, things like peanut are processed. Uh, in North America and uh, much of uh, what we call the quote-unquote Western world, we like to cold-press our peanuts, whereas uh, in parts of Asia where peanut allergies are much more rare, they like to boil their peanuts. So boiling actually decreases the allergenicity of the uh, food peanut, whereas cold pressing tends to increase the, increase the allergenicity of the peanut. Also, peanut oil was kind of ubiquitous. It used to be called ground nuts, by the way, uh, and it's actually not technically uh, a nut. It's actually a legume. But in any event, it used to be um, put in all sorts of things uh, like skincare products, and so we thought that you know, maybe this is a root of sensitization or root of acquiring the allergy. I mentioned in another podcast that all allergies, by definition, require pre-exposure. So a newborn who has a peanut allergy from the get-go may have been exposed in one of these skincare products that the mom might have used, and so on and so forth. So uh, there is some uh, evidence to show that this may in fact be the case, but, you know, it is very, very complicated. Uh, so don't beat yourself up uh, if your child has an allergy, uh, you did nothing wrong. Now, doctors are actually one of the big reasons why uh, allergies to peanuts have increased. Um, so in some countries who gave these weird dietary advices uh, to patients, uh, to pregnant moms, saying uh, introduce food X, Y, and Z at time A, B, C, this uh, turns out was based on complete, uh, I want to say, BS, but I said there's no profanity in my podcast uh, when I uh, put it on Apple, so there is no profanity, but it's BS. These sort of weird advice, uh, medicine's kind of weird, it's very patriarchal, and it, there's a lot of hierarchy, so when some old person says something, uh, you tend to have to uh, kind of believe them and go with it. Um, this is totally detrimental to patient care, and not ideal, because these sort of wrong ideas get propagated. Uh, you know, I, when I read uh, medical papers written by people who are quite, quite um, uh, senior, I would say, or well, what I would say, well-established, it's, um, 
it's kind of funny because the way they write their paper, uh, they don't even cite half their information, but because of who they are, they still get published no matter what. Uh, Which is, you know, again, just shows the ingrained hierarchy uh, that's in every doctor's subconscious. Not ideal. In any event, um, so when certain countries, uh, I'll take the UK as a perfect example, when they gave this weird strict advice, their food allergy rates actually went up more than any other uh, country. Uh, And countries that didn't have this weird regimented dietary advice, their allergies stayed pretty stable or uh, very low. So now... Only recently, there was a study, a big study called Learning Early About Peanut, or we call a LEAP, which showed that and answered the question once and for all that earlier introduction of peanut actually reduces the likelihood of having a peanut allergy. In fact, the kids that uh, were introduced earlier, around four to six months, uh, tended to develop it a lot less, even if they had the risk factor of uh, having eczema, which is one of the biggest risk factors for getting a food allergy. So, in fact, the kids who avoided the peanut were actually more likely to develop it and far more likely to develop it. So this has actually uh, made us rethink about all this weird advice that people were getting. Now, I'm proud to say that I was always in the early introduction camp this is a, what we call a pro-con debate at all of our conferences. Is it, should we introduce it early or should we introduce it late? There are forms of peanut that infants can take without having to uh, uh, worry about choking. Um, there's a bomba stick that uh, I think uh, a lot of Israeli children get. I just personally just gave uh, my two kids peanut powder that's available at any um, uh, supermarket. Uh, and I just kind of put it on their lips and uh, mouth uh, starting around the age uh, four months to six months. Now, the uh, you know intuitive argument is that when children start getting teeth around four to six months, uh, it's clearly nature telling you that they're ready for solid food. And to you know, I'm not saying replace breastfeeding or uh, replace whatever you're doing. You just want to kind of introduce slowly foods that are good for them to chew and swallow, or sorry, chew and swallow around that time. Uh, and this will decrease the likelihood of developing food allergies. In fact, for my children personally, I made sure that they got all the top 20 allergenic foods uh, in the four to six months, just because uh, I knew that uh, that may decrease the risk of developing food allergies. And uh, thank goodness they don't have food allergies. All right, so sometimes doctors are idiots and, uh, you know, uh, you always have to question everything. And what is the evidence that this recommendation is based on? Because sometimes physicians are wrong. Anyhow, this was a little bit longer than usual. I hope you enjoyed it. Well, the pre-exposure in someone uh, who was just born, uh, who's never actually eaten a peanut, may actually be uh, because of some skin product that they may have used, or might have used.